This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Equity Mates! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down the barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be back with you for another episode. Yes, the episodes keep on rolling here in lockdown. That's Uh, it. Hope hope everyone's going okay out in lockdown. Not an easy time, but uh, hopefully equity mates can bring some sort of enjoyment to your day. Um, but we've been having a good time, Ren, talking about reporting season, which keeps on rolling, and we are going to continue to do so today. Yeah, that's it. The last two Mondays, we've uh, taken a deep dive into earnings calls with the help of Quarter, an app that uh, really helps us listen to earnings calls all around the world. We started with the US and listened to some of the biggest tech names over there. Uh, Then we went to Europe, listened to earnings calls from companies like Volkswagen and Spotify. And now in the third and final installment of this uh, earnings call series, we're back home in Australia. We are back home in Australia. Uh, We've got five companies to go through today. We've got um, hearing from Atlassian, Telstra, REA Group, Coles, Ren's favorite, and Goodman Group. So, plenty of um, big Australian companies to to hear from the CEO and, and a bunch of questions from analysts on the calls. And before people uh, have a gripe about the fact that Atlassian isn't based in Australia, um, it is listed in New York, but it's a Australian-founded company. And one that I think we should be more proud of. Yeah, we've got to it, give it more credit. It's probably it, uh, it's probably the best tech startup to come out of Australia. And I'm sure people are thinking of other ones that I can't quite think of. But it is a phenomenal company started by two Australians. So let's give it some credit and let's get it on an Equity Mates episode. We have tried to get Mike Cannon Brooks on an Equity Mates episode. Until we get him on, we will have to settle for his voice on an earnings call. Yeah, so if you do have an in with uh, Brooksy, then let us know. We'd love to. Uh, we'd love to get him on the show. We've got some great CEOs coming up uh, over the next few weeks. Stay tuned for this Thursday. We've got a massive one CEO of Domino's, Don May, will be joining us, which uh, we had an epic conversation with him. But for now, we're going to be hearing them through these reporting season earnings calls. Thanks to Quarter. Head to quartr.se for their app and uh, certainly check it out because as you would know by now, Ren and I find a lot of value in these earnings calls. So should we get stuck in, Ren? Yeah, let's do it. So as you mentioned, five companies today, we really cover a good breadth of, I guess, 
topics, uh, some stuff around sustainable investing, some stuff around uh, you know software businesses and how they grow, uh, obviously the impact of COVID, conversations around inflation. There's a lot of really interesting threads to pull on in this set of clips. But let's start with Alassian. We said it doesn't get enough credit, so we're going to put it front and center. And one thing that I've noticed in these earnings calls is that the CEO introduction can take a long time. (laughs) If you you don't want the investment investment banks to ask a lot of questions, just really stretch out your CEO intro. Well, Mike Cannon-Brooks, the uh, legend that he is, uh, says enough of that. And he has the shortest and sharpest intro that I've heard on any earnings call this season. And he starts with a very Australian phrase. So let's hear Mike Cannon-Brooks <laughs> sum up uh, Alassian's Q4 FY21. Thanks for joining the call today, everyone, from wherever you are in the world. Scott's out on holiday, so it'll be just James and I taking your questions today. We're in lockdown here in Australia. So I hope you and your loved ones are safe wherever you are. As you've already read in our shareholder letter, our Q4 was a ripper of a quarter, as we say down here. We added over 23,000 net new customers. We generated revenue of 560 million, up 30% year over year. Importantly, we grew subscription revenue 50% year over year, with cloud revenue up 47% 47% year-over-year. And that cloud migration momentum continues to build. Our strong Q4 caps off another year that we're incredibly proud of. We entered FY21 staring down headwinds, and we exited stronger than ever before. I'm proud of our resilience and our ability to execute during a difficult year. We've continued to deliver innovation to technical and non-technical teams, building new products and new capabilities on top of our world-class cloud platform. We surged past 200,000 customers and $2 billion in revenue. We followed through on what we said that we would do. We played offense, and we've added more than 1,500 Atlassians to our team. And we'll continue to play offense into FY22 and beyond. We still have a lot of work to do but the opportunities in front of Atlassian have never been greater. And we're keen to seize those opportunities. Before we move to q and I want to take a moment to thank the thousands of Atlassian around the world whose resilience, passion and commitment drive the innovation that we continue to deliver to our customers every day, every month and every quarter. With that, I'll pass to the operator for your questions. Ren, you love to hear an earnings call with Ripper of a Quarter. Very Aussie. Go, Brooksy. Uh, love to hear it. So, um, no I, doubt. I also I also love how you've just given him the nickname Brooksy. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know where that's come from, but anyway. Yeah, um... yeah. I, I, I'll go with it. Maybe if we get him on, you call him Brooksy, I'll call him Cano. Cano. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, Brooksy or Slash Cano, if you're out there and listening, we'd love to get you on. But now we've got um, we've now got a question from one of the analysts around um, you know, the catalyst for the recent growth that uh, that Atlassian has seen. And uh, for Ren and I, we love businesses that that certainly think long term, and uh, that's certainly conveyed in this response. Your next question comes from the line of Keith. 
Weiss from Morgan Stanley. Your line is now open. Uh, great quarter, guys, and a really fantastic end to uh, the fiscal year. It really seems like something has catalyzed or something has shifted over the past two quarters. Um, you talked in the letter about um, the 70% acceleration of large customers coming over to cloud. Prior, you guys were a little bit more cautious on the pace of that transition. 23,000 customer ads is just a, a eye-popping number uh, compared to like the 8,000 you did a year ago. Is there something in particular? Is the macro environment? Is just like the the, the product strategy gelling, the distribution strategy showing. Is there something you could point to for that sort of what seems like a catalyst or an inflection point in the momentum on the cloud strategy and just like overall customer additions? Yeah, hey, Kate. That's uh, <laughs> Look, I think we're in a great position across the board. And we continue to take our long-term thoughts in mind. You know, if you think about the last year, in such a Maelstrom, boneheaded moves are really easy to make. And we've kept our heads. We've been very sensible about how we have uh, made decisions throughout this last 12 to 18 months and continue to uh, focus on the long term and focus on our, our customers. And so the strength that you are seeing uh, across the board in, in so many different areas comes from thousands of really smart really thoughtful, long-term decisions that we've made that are continuing to drive uh, um, the pace and progress of the lasting and, and the value to the customers. Uh, I don't think anything particular has changed in the last two years in that philosophy and strategy, which I always say is more important than individual decisions. Um, you can certainly point to things like free, which has significantly expanded our funnel and ability to um, uh, to grow the customer number in various ways. You can point to the continued integration of Trello. Uh, you, you yourself have probably asked a whole series of Trello questions over the last four years, and uh, and our answers have been very consistent and very much the same. And um, that you know is, is four years worth of work from the Trello team and the uh, all the parts of the last team in bringing that in and continue to make it part of the family. Um, that that you know continues to to pay off as does our broader uh, uh, shift and migration to the cloud, uh, which gives us a lot of fantastic capabilities for those customers right on top of our platform and all the other things that cloud brings us. So I don't have a, a singular shift. I don't think there's any individual thing that's changed. I think it's our you know, 20 years of Alaskan history and making long-term decisions and continue to execute at a, at a very, very high level against those decisions that is um, uh, that that continues. So there you have Brooksy, as Bryce has dubbed him, <laughs> just talking about how Alassian, you know, they, they could have made a number of mistakes during COVID, but they've just maintained a disciplined long-term approach. And that is quite literally paying dividends at the moment. So... Actually, I don't know if Alassian pays a dividend, so maybe figuratively rather than literally. <laughs> and just just a side note on this, uh, if you want a bit more info on how the two co-founders and co-CEOs think, go and listen to a podcast called How I Built This uh, with Guy Raz, and he interviews the two of them about their founding story, and they give a, uh, a great view on how they think very long-term when it comes to this business. So, um, yeah, you love to see it. Go and listen to it. Yeah, you love to you love to see that. You would also love to be able to say, listen to the episode of Equity Mates where we speak to them. But that <laughs> that that could be in our future. 
I, I want to close out the Alassian section with one last clip that is interesting for the Alassian story, but I think it is more interesting uh, for people who are investing in software businesses generally. We get some pretty good insight into how Atlassian is building out their, I guess, subscription model and adding tiers and adding and adding products so they can really, you know, they're already a massive business, but they're building, I guess, the the infrastructure to continue to grow revenue and to continue to grow subscription numbers. So for me, you know, we all love a software business. Um, they seem to really be the flavor of the moment with pretty incredible unit economics and operating leverage. And I think this final clip from Atlassian's earnings call gives us some good insight about the company, but about software businesses more generally. Congrats on the quarter and, uh, you know, ripper of a quarter is, is understating it. Um, I guess, you know, going back to this idea of free to premium to enterprise, I, I guess, can you walk us through a little bit more of the details on the adoption curve of, of standards of premium to enterprise in any sense to uh, the mix within those buckets at this point and how long it takes to move up the stack on average or why customers um, might not be moving up at this point but could move up over the next 12 months. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I, one of the things I'd start by saying is how the free editions have really expanded the top of our marketing funnel in an impressive way. I, we talked in prior quarters about a 3x uh, type factor, and and frankly, as each quarter goes by, we continue to refine the uh, the the experience, if you will, that the user has with our, our free offering, making it easier to invite others in uh, on their team, not requiring someone to go through an admin. Uh, it would change the trial lengths and so forth. Uh, associated uh, uh, with the move up to standard. So we continue to refine uh, the way the user experiences and gains value from our free offering, but then also is introduced to the additional benefits of the standard pay plan. Uh, and so you're know, very pleased with how, as we study the different monthly cohorts that have started with free over the last year or so, how uh, they are moving increasingly towards the paid plans uh, to the degree that we feel very comfortable with the long-term economics of uh, uh, offering free versions of Jira software, Confluence and Jira service management into the market. And I think that was one of the key initiatives of this last fiscal year that will serve us well out over many years to come. Uh, In terms of premium, uh, yes, we uh, started off uh, 18 months, two years or so ago with a relatively modest uh, package of incremental functionality versus the standard plan. And you know, not surprisingly, uh, and we expected this, it was a relatively modest take-up. But that was just getting us out of the gates, if you will. And we have, as I mentioned in uh, one of our earlier comments, really uh, routinely expanded what's available in that that premium offering, and we will continue to do that uh, in in the years to come. Uh, and we've been very pleased with uh, how Jira Software, Jira Service Management, and Confluence Premium Editions uh, have increased their impact on the overall uh, 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 proportion of 
of cloud customers. Uh, and then we're just really getting started with enterprise, very early days, uh, but encouraging developments thus far. Uh, and again, well, uh, this is one of our key areas of focus for R&D development. Uh, and I would expect us to uh, continue to build momentum around the enterprise additions over the next year or two. Uh, Mike, what would you add to that? I think James Beer did a fantastic job actually answering that question. The only one small element of color I would add, um, and, and it may be taken for granted, but I just want to make sure everyone understands, a customer does not need to buy one edition across the board. So one of our advantages in having a family of products is the adoption curves of each product can go at the pace of the particular customer or group department within that customer set of teams, whoever is using that particular product. This is where our ladder is very consciously designed to be customer friendly and customer first, and it is really starting to resonate. So an example there is you could use Jira software, enterprise edition or premium edition in a large company because you have a very mature engineering organization with a lot of capabilities, and adopt Confluence Free with a small group of 10 people alongside that as you start to uh, uh, learn about how Confluence can add to your software team, as that Confluence deployment grows, you probably move into standard and you probably move into uh, a premium over time if it's a large company and, and the user base continues to grow and we have success, right, with your usage. So a single customer can buy different editions of different products at the same time depending on their adoption of each of the different areas and opportunities and markets that we have. Um, that's that's designed like that on on purpose so that customers can um, can grow at their own uh, pace in different areas. Nice. Well, that's uh, a wrap from uh, Brooksy and, and Atlassian. Um, a lot go- a lot going on uh, over there, and it is great to see the Aussie startup story continuing strength to strength. Now we move to uh, a company that is listed here in Australia, and that is a company that has forever, what feels like forever been on the, on the turnaround story, and that is Telstra, uh, hearing from their CEO, Andy Penn. So we're just going to hear uh, a little bit about the return to growth, uh, what they've done to their workforce, and then close it out with some commentary from him around uh, ESG. Thanks very much, Nathan, and good morning and welcome to Telstra's results announcement for the full year ended 30th of June 2021, a year in which we saw our underlying business return to growth, a year in which we continued to make strong progress against our T22 strategy. This morning, I will make some introductory remarks and take you through an overview of our results. Vicky will then take you through the numbers in more detail before we move to Q&A. Before I start, I wanted to thank you for attending virtually. It's been a trying 18 months for all of us, and my thoughts go out to those of you that are in lockdown and those families that are in businesses that are doing it tough. I sincerely hope your families and yourself are staying safe. Let me turn then to 2021, because 2021 was a significant year for Telstra. It was a crucial milestone in our T22 journey. It represents a turning point in our financial trajectory with second-half underlying EBITDA up on the first half, guidance for FY22 underlying EBITDA in the range of 7 to $7.3 billion, representing mid- to high single-digit growth, and FY21 net profit after tax and earnings per share up 3.4% and 2% respectively. 
We have achieved this because we have stayed disciplined and we have stayed focused on delivering what we said we would deliver. Three years into what has been one of the largest and most ambitious transformations of a telco globally, we are a vastly different company. Since announcing T22, we have radically simplified our business, reducing the number of plans for our consumer small businesses from 1,800 to 20. We've removed lock-in contracts. We've removed excess data. We've removed many other fees. The number of calls coming into our contact centres has fallen by more than two-thirds, and by the end of this financial year, we expect to answer all calls from these customers in Australia. We're also well-progressed on the arrangements to bring our licensee stores back in-house. We've cut our workforce by one-third, reducing our direct and indirect headcount by more than 25,000 in response to the transfer of a material part of our business to the MBN and from our digitisation and efficiency initiatives. We've also exceeded our target to recruit new capabilities in new areas, exciting areas such as software engineering, data analytics, cyber security, artificial intelligence, with more than 1,500 new hires. We have removed, on average, more than four layers of management. We've delivered cost reductions of $2.3 billion, and we are on track to deliver our T22 productivity target by the end of this financial year of cumulatively $2.7 billion. That's more than a third of our starting cost base. We've repositioned our investment in Foxtel, retaining access to key content for our customers and supporting its turnaround. We have similarly repositioned our investments in Telstra Ventures, which delivered a mark-to-market gain for us this year of $300 million. We've improved the performance of our health business, and with Monday's announcement regarding Medical Director, it is now very well strategically positioned for the future. We've also successfully established Infraco, and we are progressing with our corporate restructure. We will continue to focus on opportunities to realise additional value for shareholders on top of the $2.8 billion deal on towers that we announced recently. We have monetised over $2 billion of assets, further strengthening our balance sheet. And in addition to our ordinary dividends, we have returned approximately 75% of the net one-off payments from the NBN to shareholders, and today we have announced an on-market share buyback, returning up to a further $1.35 billion from the Towers deal that we announced earlier. And we have taken a leadership position on climate change and the environment, and we have been certified carbon neutral since this time last year. We also continue to make progress on our other two climate targets to reduce our absolute emissions by at least 50% by 2030 and to enable renewable energy equivalent to 100% of our consumption by 2025. So there we have Andy Penn celebrating the Telstra turnaround story. <laughs> now, like, let, let's be honest, it's pretty impressive. Uh, Telstra has been a, a almost about to turn around story for a, as long as we've been investing. Uh, I guess you know the proof will be in the pudding if they can continue this growth for halves and years to come. Um, but I think you know credit where credit's due. Uh, two two notes from me uh, on the Telstra earnings call. First of all, Andy closed with some thoughts around ESG, how they're carbon neutral, how they're working to re- reduce their emissions. That was a consistent theme across 
all of the Australian earnings calls I listened to, um, every CEO mentioned ESG and sustainability. And I think that's reflective of the questions that the market and the investment banking community are asking them. Um, ethical investing, sustainable investing is having an impact and, and we'll see, see that a little bit more in Coles where we go to next. But one other note that's not in the clip we played but uh, was on the earnings call and if you want to hear more about it, you can go and listen on the quarter app. Uh, Telstra have a like a venture capital arm, Telstra Ventures. They've made 74 investments. 12 have reached unicorn status. So valuations of a billion dollars or more. And four have reached a $10 billion valuation, which is a pretty incredible success rate. Yeah, that seems amazing. I remember when we, like maybe a year ago, um, you did a social post that showed the success of the acquisitions that Telstra had made. And they'd, they've made in the you know high 10 10 close to 100 or something like that um all of which a majority of which weren't very successful so it's good to see that from their venture point of view they're having a lot more success in that space and yeah, 12, yeah. it 12 was out a of 74 yeah it was a tweet i think and it was like here was their share price here's the amount of money they've spent on acquisitions and here's how much their share price has dropped in that time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but look, Andy Penn, full credit. Uh, we will continue to watch the Telstra story in earnings seasons to come. But Bryce, we're up to that time of the episode where I really get to wax lyrical about a company that I'm very fond of, a company that I used to work for, and a company that I don't think gets the credit it deserves. Oh, come on. <laughs> come and that, on. That is Coles. Uh, but... To leave me in anticipation for a little bit longer, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll get stuck in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, look, Ren, we're at that time in the episode that you've been waiting for for months and months now, and that is uh, some clean air to just absolutely give it all you've got for Coles and uh, they've luckily have uh, in time for this episode their earnings call came out Woolworths haven't uh, their earnings call wasn't out at the time of recording so I'm not able to uh, to give my my rebuttal however uh, I'm just going to hand this over to you and, yeah. let, and let you run with it <laughs> look if you're only going to download the quarter app for one earnings call every half it's worth it to hear Stephen Kane 
uh, you know, <laughs> oh, wax wax oh, lyrical oh, about the supermarket sector. Um, so we'll start with uh, his introduction to the call, and I just want to make a note that of all the earnings calls I listen to all around the world oh, uh, to go. prepare for these three episodes. Stephen is the only CEO to open the call himself. There's no VP of Investor Relations. There's no operator. It's just Stephen Kane, man of the people, starting the call, <laughs> get, getting on with the job. Uh, <laughs> they, they've cut their bottom line so much that they don't have anyone to open the call. <laughs> yeah, part of their smarter selling cost-cutting program was, was yeah, Stephen has to run his own Steve, call. But... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but let's let's get stuck into it. Uh, here's Stephen opening the call and talking about the impact uh, of COVID, especially on the supermarket sector. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Uh, Stephen here. Um, welcome to our 2021 full year results announcement. Uh, joining me on the call today is Leah Weckert, our CFO. Once again, we are presenting our results from a lockdown Melbourne. It's hard to believe that it was only two months ago that we had our virtual strategy day here. Much has changed since then, most notably the emergence of the Delta COVID-19 strain, the release of a vaccination program, which will see the majority of Australians vaccinated by Christmas, and the roadmap to normality, including migration. The good news is there is finally a light at the end of a two-year tunnel. And I, along with many others uh, at Coles, are looking forward to 2022. During FY21, we've experienced 11 COVID lockdowns. And again, I would like to acknowledge our team members, suppliers, community partners, and the various governments for their resilience and support to secure our food supply chain and deliver a safe in-store environment for our customers. With that, I'll move into the presentation um, for today. So slide one, um, I'd like to start by briefly talking about our vision, purpose and strategy, which was launched two years ago and designed to build trust with all stakeholders, our ecosystem, if you like, and grow long-term shareholder value. Whilst we've made significant progress, we recognize the majority of our transformation and associated benefits are still to come particularly those that relate to our automation projects with Vitron and Ocado. The operational highlight for the year was the improvement and acceleration of our e-commerce business uh, and omni-channel offer, which exceeded $2 billion across the group for the first time. We introduced more unique and innovative products, particularly through own brand, rolled out new formats uh, like Coles Local and Black and White Liquor, and launched our new Together to Zero sustainability strategy in our quest to be Australia's most sustainable supermarket. Moving on to slide four, uh, I will not go into this slide in too much detail as most of it will be covered later, but it serves as a reminder of where we have come from since our demerger in FY19. It is clear we're making real progress against each of our strategic pillars of inspire customers, smarter selling, and win together. As we look to the future and increase investment and pace of change at Coles, you will see an increasingly differentiated omnichannel offer around own brand, Ocado, team engagement, and sustainability, supported by longer-term supplier relationships and our smarter selling program. 
Moving on to slide five, with regards to the financial results for FY21, total sales increased by 3.1% to $38.6 billion uh, on a two-year basis. Uh, headline sales increased by 10.2%, EBIT increased by 6.3% to $1.9 billion, and we delivered operating leverage across all three segments of the business. Net profit after tax increased by 7.5% to just over $1 billion. Smartest selling continues um, at pace and delivered around about $300 million. Capital expenditure was pretty much as forecast $1.1 billion. Uh, operating cash flow was $3.6 billion and strong cash realization of 106%. Uh, complementing a strong balance sheet for future growth with net debt of just $355 million. So there we have Stephen's opening remarks. The thing that stands out to me, and I know the thing that gets you excited, Bryce, is a retailer that is moving into e-commerce and obviously accelerated by the COVID lockdowns, Coles is massively growing their e-commerce business. Um, I don't think he said it in that clip, but in another um, part of the call that we haven't featured, uh, they they mentioned the growth rate in e-commerce, 52% growth um, in the year, which is great. You love to see those numbers. Hmm. Um, but in that clip, he mentioned over $2 billion in e-commerce sales. I remember I was at Coles when we got past $1 billion, and that was only a year or two ago. So, some pretty incredible growth coming from that part of the business. Um, Obviously, the 11 lockdowns that Coles dealt with in different parts of the country in FY21 definitely changed consumer behavior and pushed a lot of shopping to online. So, yeah, Yeah. does that get you excited about Coles? (laughs) It gets me excited in general because... Similar to you, when I was in the digital team at Woolworths for a period of time, I remember when we celebrated the the first billion, uh, you know, the billion dollar sales, and also I remember what the growth uh, yearly growth targets were, which at the time seemed, you know, phenomenal growth targets if you were to compare them to the bricks and mortar part of the business. But now they seem insignificant compared to the growth that both Coles and Woolies are pumping out in their e-commerce businesses at the moment. So it's just um, amazing to see how quickly these businesses have grown, particularly with um, with the changes that have happened during COVID. But I mean, the the way that these companies are having, having to scale up, not only from infrastructure, but people as well um, in these businesses, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, well, speaking of the impact of COVID, this next clip uh, comes on the back of a question from an investment banker about how things have opened up in FY22, and it just gives some good insight into how, I guess, shopping patterns have changed. Some of it not surprising with rules around 10-kilometer or 5-kilometer radiuses, but I think for us looking Try, trying to pull out information from earnings calls that are broadly applicable for lots of companies. I think some of the insight in this clip is relevant to really any business with a physical p- footprint, but especially any retailer with a physical footprint, be it you know Baby Bunting, JB Hi-Fi, any, any of those list of companies. Um, so here's Stephen answering a question about how the lockdowns have 
impacted their opening to F22. Thanks, Stephen, Leo, and congratulations on, on a great result. Um, Stephen, I was wondering if we might be able to drag out a little bit more detail on current trading, um, maybe state by state, and whether the extra capacity you've added online means that your market share this time around is not going to be as negatively impacted um, versus last time when we were in lockdown. Yeah, uh, good morning, Ross, and uh, thanks for the question. Current, as we said in the statement, current trading is is volatile by state, by day, by hour, and uh, it's almost the biggest challenge we've got at the moment is uh, keeping up with the changing sales profiles that we're experiencing. However, what I would say overall is, uh, was when a lockdown happens, we're seeing shorter, um, less spiky panic buying, which suggests that people are getting used to lockdowns. Um, and then as we enter longer lockdowns, and particularly the five-kilometer rule, that's uh, then when we see that real move to uh, more e-commerce and more local uh, shopping. In terms of the store cohorts, we've seen um, perhaps not as uh, significant yet amount of change as we saw last time, but we have seen neighborhood stores uh, increasing by double digits, and we have seen shopping centers reducing by uh, double digit. So the same sort of phenomenons uh, as last time, but not yet quite as marked. Um, the point about online is a good one. We're in a far better space this year than last year in terms of both capability and capacity. Um, you know, we'd still probably like more if we uh, if we could, but um, the online um, business is uh, is in is in good shape and. It means that I think that um, for those competitors who don't have a strong online offer, then you know clearly they'll lose out to um, shoppers who want uh, home deliveries or click and collect to the boot of the car. So, Bryce, some interesting insight there around uh, the differentiated impact on stores based on their location. Obviously, when we're all locked down at home, neighborhood stores doing a lot better, city stores and metro stores doing a lot worse. So, I guess if you're looking at another retailer, um, it's probably worth looking at where their stores are located to try and think about how their sales mix is affected with these ongoing lockdowns into F22. But we now turn to the final clip of the Coles earnings calls, the saddest part of the episode because I know we're soon going to have to move (laughs) on from Coles. (laughs) Um, But obviously, sustainability is the you know front and center of most of the the company's minds this this earnings season, and more generally, um, you know, for the last few years, more and more funds have been you know investing ethically, more and more investment bankers have been asking questions about it, more and more customers and team members have been focused on it. And we really saw a consistent theme across all of these Australian earnings calls that sustainability was front and center. Uh, This question from an investment banker was an interesting one. He asks about sustainability and whether it can be a point of difference or whether, you know, Woolworths is going to be more sustainable, Coles is going to be more sustainable, and it's just going to be a bit of a push. Uh, So I thought the answer was interesting and I also just think it was a moment where I really reflected on the impact that ethical and sustainable investing is having on the way that, you know, the the big investors are thinking and then, 
you know, that how that flows on to the way company leaders are, are approaching, I guess, the task of becoming more sustainable. Uh, so we'll listen to Stephen answer this question now. I mean, it's the second point, and, and dare I say, this is a question I might have liked to have asked at the strategy day, but just sustainability is a key theme from Coles. Um, I'm just curious about how you see this as a point of difference in that I don't think it's a, a thing that Woolworths aren't pursuing either. And it, is, is it something where you see it as a point of difference that will drive incremental sales from, you know, from competitors? Or is it going to be a little bit like being competitive on price where both Woolworths and Coles are going to be there or thereabouts on price and it's just each of them have their own sustainability um, attributes, but it's not going to be one where one where one supermarket is sustainable and the other is not. I'm just curious how you see this. Will it drive incremental sales or is it just going to be something like price where you um, you know, generally have to be in the game, the sustainability like you have to be in the game of price competition, please? Yeah, it's a great, great question. Thanks, Sean. Um, <clears throat> You know, we've said all along we want to be the most sustainable supermarket, and it's it's not because it sounded like a good thing to do. It's because, at one level, for all ASX companies, certainly in the top 100, sustainability is going to be a license to operate, and we're increasingly seeing that investment is following people who are sustainable, and increasingly there's concerns around companies that are not doing sustainable things and who's funding them. And so we're seeing more questions from shareholders, we're seeing more questions from customers, and we're seeing more questions from our team members on sustainability. So there's one level which is it's a license to operate, but if you stand back from the market, um, and again, it's a bit like online, I look at the food, I don't look at the food market as one competitor. I look at the food market as a market that's got thousands and thousands of competitors um, across the nation. Um, and uh, a very diverse and diversifying customer base that's changing faster than ever before. And so all our data says that customers are becoming more interested in sustainability and that they will vote for their feet if they see someone doing something better that they like. Um, and, you know, we think we've got a plan that will um, differentiate us over time. We've, we've done some things historically which differentiate us over time. We've, we believe we've got the most sustainable, you know, meat supply chain in terms of animal husbandry, for example, and we'll continue to um, to promote uh, those things, and we'll continue to do new things. But when you stand back from the market overall, um, we'll be doing things that a lot of uh, those thousands of competitors that we compete with won't be able to do because a lot of them require significant investment, and those are some of the investments that we're making now, either on our own or with our partners, you know, so the Vitron is a good example where, you know, we're partnering now with um, the landlords to put the uh, solar panels on the roofs and, and everything else. Uh, we've had our first solar panel farms come on stream um, and we're well on the way to achieving our renewable target. So these things are, are expensive, but the return on them is getting better. Uh, all the time, but we think we will be differentiated in, in sustainability and not, not just from an environmental point of view, but who we partner with and the way we behave in the community. Nice, Ren. Well, you'll have to hear it. And um, I've, you know, I've recently seen a lot of ads on TV about Coles trying to become the most sustainable 
supermarket in Australia, I think. I don't think they went as large as saying the world from memory, but um, lofty The world is tough. The, <laughs> the world the is w- very tough. The world is tough <laughs> given some of the, uh, I guess, different regulations around the world, shall we say. Uh, I think <laughs> okay. the, the, role, the role of government is often underestimated in making companies be more sustainable. Um, and I think, you know, the most sustainable supermarkets in the world... To, to, to knock off some of the Europeans um, would would require some more effort from government. But anyway, that's mm. that's not uh, that's not why we're here for me to give my opinions no. on the regulatory <laughs> framework. Um, although we could do an episode on it if no, we wanted. No, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, let's move on. Next Australian company that we're going to hear from is REA Group. Um, they uh, they own the realestate.com uh, website uh, that competes with Domain. And of course, with a hot housing market, uh, we can expect to see some good numbers coming out of REA Group. So this uh, clip we hear from the CEO, Owen Wilson, um, and uh, he talks about some of the, the, the numbers that they're pumping out from a revenue and EBITDA point of view. Thanks, Graham, and welcome to everyone joining us today. The 2021 financial year has been a defining period for REA. Through a year that saw extraordinary disruption, the business has accelerated our growth ambitions and delivered exceptional financial results. Looking at our results from cooperations for the year, revenue was $928 million, an increase of 13%. EBITDA, after share of associates, was $565 million, an increase of 19%. And NPAT was $318 million, an increase of 18%. Pleasingly, we also maintained our strong core EBITDA margin at 60%. The board has determined to pay a full-year dividend of $0.131 per share, fully franked, a 19% increase on the prior corresponding period. As you can see on this slide, alongside our strong financial result, REA delivered a number of significant milestones. I'm very proud of our team's ability to respond to the changing needs of our customers and consumers during the pandemic, while also accelerating our growth strategy through a number of pivotal investments. We'll cover these achievements in more detail throughout the presentation. REA has continued to make great strides in the delivery of our strategy during FY21. This included new record audience levels and the unveiling of new products and solutions to drive more leads to our customers. In India, we acquired a controlling interest in the Lara Technologies, while our transaction with Property Guru creates the most compelling PropTech group in Southeast Asia. And at home, we acquired Mortgage Choice, building on the strength of our smart line broker business and accelerating our financial services strategy. These investments provide the foundation for sustainable long-term growth. Turning to our audience highlights. Fundamental to our success is having the largest and most engaged audience of property seekers. Realestate.com.au extended its audience leadership position throughout FY21. An average of 121 million visits were received each month, up 35% year-on-year, or 3.3 times more visits than the nearest competitor. Of the 12.6 million people who visit realestate.com.au each month on average, 6.4 million are exclusive to our site. Our app remains Australia's number one property app, with an average of 55 million launches each month, up 49% year on year. 
When compared to the other leading digital brands, realestate.com.au is now Australia's eighth largest in terms of audience, reaching over 60% of the adult population. This shows that our brand has become part of the everyday lives of so many Australians. Turning to our consumer highlights of the year, our goal is to convert Australia's largest audience of property seekers into realestate.com.au members by delivering valuable insights and experiences powered by our unique property data, our membership base grew 31% year on year. Our member profiles enable us to deliver targeted, personalised experiences, providing consumers with the right information at the right time based on their activity on the site. This in turn increases consumer engagement, which is evidenced by a 20% increase in members who are active on our site. The strength of our relationship with consumers is also demonstrated by a 52% year-on-year increase in properties being tracked by homeowners, while the total numbers of property tracks being tracked also grew significantly, up 62% year-on-year. <clears throat> the launch of our property owner dashboard is just one example of the new features we're bringing to market to empower consumers throughout their property journey. This experience, launched in December, allows homeowners to monitor their market and make confident choices when selling, renting, renovating or financing. Importantly, it also serves as a powerful way for buyers and sellers to connect with agents and agencies. 24% of owners visiting the dashboard have become a seller, refinance or landlord prospect since launch, while the volume of leads delivered has increased 71%. So obviously some good numbers from REA Group, but... Probably my two biggest takeaways from that clip were to really think outside of Australia when it comes to REA Group. You know, they uh, Owen mentioned investments in India and Southeast Asia, and then just how dominant their audience position is. Uh, Realestate.com.au is 3.3 times larger than their nearest competitor in terms of web- website visits. I assume that competitor is Domain. I couldn't really think of another one. Yeah, I find that surprising to be honest, but... Um, can't argue with the numbers, but it's it's quite a sizable difference. Mm, mm. Three and a half um, times larger. Yeah, and sixty percent of the Australian adult population is visiting Crazy. their website. It shows how much we're obsessed with property. Yeah, yeah, far out. But I think on the theme of thinking outside of Australia, this second clip we have from Owen uh, talks about some of those investments. And it really made me think about the future growth of REA coming from new geographies outside of Australia. As I mentioned earlier, 2021 was a defining year for REA Group. We made a number of pivotal investments to accelerate key areas of our strategy. I'll cover off the larger of these in the coming slides. In December, we moved to a controlling position in Alara Technologies, which operates the Indian websites housing.com, makan.com and proctiger.com. Throughout the year, Alara achieved a number of key milestones despite the significant impacts of COVID in India. On this slide, you can see that our flagship site, housing.com, made excellent inroads in the battle for market leadership. Site visits increased 92% year on year, and we also saw a phenomenal growth in app usage, up a staggering 242%. This trend corresponds with the rapid digitisation of India's real estate market, which presents exciting opportunities. In January, Housing Edge was launched on housing.com as part of the focus to create a seamless consumer property experience. 
Housing Edge digitises multiple services for homeowners and tenants, including rent agreements, tenant verification and home loan options, all designed to make the process of moving home as simple as possible. Six new native language search experiences were launched on housing.com. This means we're now able to attract new users and reach more of India's population. While we're early in our journey in India, the progress this year points to an exciting future. Moving on to financial services. And as you can see on this slide, we had an outstanding year in terms of broker recruitment, submissions and settlements. Janelle will talk to these results in more detail. We also launched new features to provide a highly personalised home loan experience. These features, such as our loan tracker, are receiving positive consumer engagement and driving more qualified, higher value mortgage leads. Building on the strong foundation of our financial services business, the acquisition of Mortgage Choice has accelerated our strategy. Bringing Mortgage Choice together with our smart line broker business gives us the opportunity to be the leading mortgage broker business in Australia. The combined business has a significant national broker footprint and a 5% market share of the $400 billion annual home loan market. Our investment in Sympology will help us provide consumers with choice and simplicity when navigating their home loan options. It will also deliver productivity improvements to our broker network through higher quality loan submissions, resulting in less rework, faster loan approval times and streamlined business operations. We see considerable growth opportunities through the combination of our larger broker network, REA's digital expertise, our high intent property seeker and owner audience, and our unique data and insights. Core to our financial services offering is delivering a multi-channel proposition that can deliver great rates and choice coupled with ease and great service. It's a winning proposition. Today, 60% of mortgages go through brokers who offer invaluable advice to Australians navigating the complexities of financing their properties. At the same time, 40% of people are comfortable undertaking the mortgage process on their own. Our strategy is focused on servicing 100% of the market. <clears throat> this year, REA completed the transaction to combine our, this week I should say, <laughs> it is this year as well, uh, REA completed the transaction to combine our Malaysia and Thailand businesses with Property Guru. In exchange, REA now has an 18% interest in this larger, more diversified company and takes one seat on the board. I'm delighted to be joining the PG board later this year. Prior to this transaction, REA also divested its stake in 99 Group. Southeast Asia is one of the fastest growing regions globally, predicted to become the fourth largest economy by 2030. COVID has brought a permanent and massive spike in digital adoption across the real estate sector. 70% of the region's population is now online. Property Guru now holds the number one position in four of Southeast Asia's five key markets and is perfectly positioned to propel the next wave of prop tech innovation across the region. Another exciting development for Property Guru was its recent announcement regarding its intention to pursue a listing on the New York Stock Exchange, another big step in the company's evolution. REA's current momentum, coupled with our strategic investments and exciting product roadmap, create an excellent platform to deliver on our ambitious plans across all of our markets to drive future growth. Our core business has never been stronger and we will continue to focus on attracting audiences that are actively engaged through the delivery of highly compelling personalised experiences. The last 12 months have fast-tracked our customers' appetite for digital solutions. 
we'll continue to roll out and cement new offerings like Connect to help our customers drive their businesses to new levels. Leveraging our unique data and insights, we will grow our PropTac business as a trusted leader in property data and valuations products. PropTac delivered a record result this year and is set for strong growth in FY22. The continued growth of our core business is balanced with the creation of next generation marketplaces, extending our ability to offer truly differentiated experiences for buyers, sellers, renters and owners. There's still so much to do in financial services and we have an ambitious longer term goal to originate one in 10 home loans in Australia. And finally, in India, we will continue to invest to become the undisputed number one digital real estate business in one of the largest growth markets in the world. Nice, Ren. Uh, that's a question that we've... So we've had REA pitched a couple of times on our AusBiz channel um, as part of our Watchlist Wednesday, and it's good to hear the CEO addressing the opportunities outside of Australia because it's a question that we often ask our experts around, you know, the dominance they have here in Australia. What does that mean for uh, growth outside of Australia? So um, it was interesting to hear the comments there. Um, so to close out today, we've got uh, a final call from Goodman Group. So for those of you who don't know who Goodman Group um, are, they're a company that essentially owns and manages and develops uh, a bunch of uh, primarily industrial real estate, um, warehouses, you know, office parks, all that sort of stuff, um, both domestically and around the world. Um, so we start this clip with an intro from their CEO, Greg Goodman, um, with a bit of a summary on how things are going for them. Good morning and welcome, everybody. I hope you're keeping safe and well in these very uncertain times. Nick Rondas is with me on the call. Throughout the year, Goodman has remained flexible and adapted to the changing conditions, enabling our business to deliver strong growth with the health and well-being of our people remaining a high priority. We've continued to build on previous years with operating profit of $1.22 billion, up 15% on last year. The result highlights strong growth in our development workbook, high demand from our customers, and positive revaluation outcomes. Operating earnings per security for the year of 65.6 cents is up 14.1% on the previous year, and statutory profit came in at $2.3 billion when you include primarily the revaluations. Goodman is well capitalised with gearing at 6.8% and available liquidity of $1.9 billion, including $900 million in cash. Our partnerships, importantly, also have $18 billion available for future investment. Market conditions are strong in our sector. Continued growth in the digital economy is giving our customers confidence to grow. Our global portfolio is well positioned to facilitate their needs. Our development workbook increased during the year to $10.6 billion. Our global work in progress is spread across 73 projects in 12 countries. And importantly, the development program has very strong margins. The depth of demand is leading to a high level of pre-commitments with work in progress at 70%, leased and an average lease term of 14 years. 
Projects completed in FY21 are almost 100% leased. Development undertaken on behalf of our partners remains consistent with prior periods at 81%. The activity is flowing through the partnership's performance and also the assets under management. Assets grew solidly through the year and now stand at $58 billion. Our partnerships delivered average returns of 18% with solid income and capital growth. With strong visibility into the development activity, we're forecasting growth in assets under management this year to an excess of $65 billion, which in turn will be reflected in revenues in future periods. Regeneration of our existing brownfield sites is an important part of our global sustainability strategy, given their lower impact on the environment. Developing brownfield sites decreases waste, preserves greenfields land, and generates jobs where people live. Reducing commute times and uses existing infrastructure. These sites represent more than half of our development land and will provide us with more development opportunities in future periods. One of our most important areas of focus this year has been to integrate ESG initiatives into everything we do at Goodman. We're focused on a long-term sustainable approach that leads to positive economic environment and social outcomes for our business, our stakeholders and the world more broadly. This year our global operations achieved carbon neutrality four years ahead of our target. And looking ahead, we're working with our contractors and customers to decarbonise our developments, a critical part of the solution to emissions reduction We've established a framework to calculate the embodied emissions from our development projects globally, which will allow us to reduce the off and offset this in the future. So no surprises there. That clip ends with Greg mentioning ESG. As we've said throughout this episode, sustainability has been a focus across all of these earnings calls. I think my other big takeaway from that clip was the rise of the digital economy and how that's just such a big tailwind for Goodman Group. Uh, We haven't included any of the clips in this episode because we're already running long, but there's a bunch of questions and uh, interesting color in this earnings call around what the digital economy means for Goodman, but more generally, you know, where different parts of the world are up in that, I guess, transformation towards e-commerce and... um, away and away from bricks and mortar. So uh, an interesting introduction there. We've got one final clip uh, to play today from the Goodman earnings call. A Morgan Stanley analyst was clearly trying to reconcile the numbers on the call. And <laughs> this this final clip is a few minutes and it's, uh, it's a few questions back to back. And you can actually sort of see the analyst trying to reconcile the numbers as he's talking to uh, the Goodman team. So uh, this will be the final clip for today's episode. If you do want to listen to more, obviously download the quarter app on the app store or head to their website. Um, But here we have this Morgan Stanley analyst trying to reconcile some of Goodman's numbers on the call. Uh, But our first question today comes from the line of Simon Chan from Morgan Stanley. So uh, please ask your question, Simon. Oh, good day. Good morning, um, Greg and Nick. Um, 
first question, just um, on how much how much dis- worth of uh, disposals did you guys factor in uh, for FY22 in your guidance? Because I, I noticed you guys sold about three 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 billion or maybe a bit more last year. Just what should we be expecting next year? Oh, look, look, I think in the next 12 months it's going to be minimal. I think we've done, Simon, what we wanted to do in the last four or five years. We've repositioned the portfolio globally. We've then positioned that capital back into the infill sites, which we wanted to do around the world. Those infill sites are now starting to crank into production through 22, 23 and 24. So most of, the, most of where we want to position the portfolio for growth is done. Uh, so it'll be relatively minor in the scheme of 65, 67, 65 to 67 billion of assets. Will be pretty minor. Great, um, very clear. Thanks, mate. Uh, and then on your production rate of 6.5 or 6.6 billion dollars, can, can you guys just give us a feel for when, when will that actually translate through to? to, you know, completions, if at all. I mean, I'm just trying to reconcile that this uh, uh, production rate, you know, going from 4 bill to 5 bill, there's now 6.6 bill, yet your annual completions, you know, only gone from 1.5 bill to 2.5 bill. Like, and I acknowledge that, you know, stuff takes, you were saying, 19 months to complete. So are we, are we close to the point, you know, perhaps back in FFY22 when we should see a, a pretty noticeable uplift in, in completions and, and AUM? Yeah, look, uh, good question, Simon. Um, I'll, I'll just make one comment. We're carrying a lot of work uh, through this June 21 into 22. Uh, so we're starting 22 very strongly, but I'll just pass over to Nick for a few few other comments. Yeah, that, that's spot on, Greg. So, yeah, Simon, so I think we flagged this a year ago that we'll go through this transition process because we're dropping off a lot of shorter data projects and picking up a lot of longer data ones. And so until that normalises, it'll take a bit of time. But FY22, we expect that there will be another step up and then FY23, uh, another step up again. That's the the program. Sorry, when you say another step up, a step up in what? In completions. If the production rate remains around this six, six and a half level, over yep. time, the completion rate should be get pretty close to that, but it'll take a couple of years for us to get to that normalised level. It won't all happen in one year. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, mate, just p- p- putting that together, then it's, I'm just struggling to see how your EPS growth expectation is only 10% for next year, right? I mean, Greg said you're not going to be selling a material amount of assets. Your completions is going to go up. You know, throwing a little bit of reval. Um, like, is there something else I'm missing in putting all that together? Simon, I, I think we're looking at the world uh, pretty realistically. We've got a world which is, you know, difficult. You've got supply chains that are challenged. So we're just being, uh, we're just taking a sensible look at the world and putting a sensible number out, which we think 1.36 billion is a good number. It's cash. It's operating profit. We would expect valuations to be also strong, uh, so we think it's just a prudent, sensible number at this point point of the the year. Can I just pick up on the point you made there, Greg? Supplies chain, uh, supply chain's been challenged. Is that is that increasing your 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 you know manufacturing costs of your sheds, etc.? Is that 
something with yeah, look, uh, good good question. The 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 out of the ten point six billion, there's about three and a half billion in concrete, steel, and construction. So it's actually not as uh, not as volatile. Even cost increases at the top line. Uh, so land and profit and risk is you know sixty five seventy percent of the equation at the moment. So look, not not from a profitability point of view. I think from a timing point of view. You've got to be realistic this year that things, uh, with everyone dealing with the Delta strain, are slowed down in the, in, certainly in the construction process in parts of the world. The good news for us is having a global portfolio and a global business, uh, we can sort of w- work with those cycles as we actually have been in the last 18 months. So I think 10% is a good number. It's a big number. It's a sensible number at this time of the year. That's terrific. Thanks, guys. Interesting to hear how they are doing that on the fly, Ren. So there you go. That brings us to the end of today's episode. One, a couple of final things, though. We're very excited for this Thursday's episode. Uh, it's part of our ASX 200 challenge where we want to be interviewing all uh, top 200, ASX 200 CEOs, managing directors, uh, business leaders. And uh, that continues this Thursday as we sit down with Don May, the uh, CEO of Domino's, to discuss his fascinating journey from uh, pizza delivery boy to now leading a, a huge global pizza empire. Uh, it's, it was an awesome conversation, so make sure you tune into that. Please do leave us a review as well if you can. It really helps uh, to grow Equity Mates, uh, so head over and and uh, and leave us a review. If you have noticed uh, anything regarding the audio over the last few months, we are rectifying it, so please, if you want to have uh, leave us some feedback on that, just email us directly. That is uh, much appreciated, and also and also ran- and and also just go easy because we're not in a studio. We're recording from home, so <laughs> yeah. we are we are trying to get this uh, audio fixed. We know Bryce's voice is too deep and blowing some speakers, uh, which is really makes him quite proud. Given he tried to blow speakers up when he was a DJ back in the day, <laughs> and now he's doing it uh, as a podcaster, but. Yeah, let, flick us a DM or an email if if there are further audio issues, and we are we are trying to sort it out. Absolutely. Well, uh, that brings us to the end uh, of our reporting season series. The the last three episodes, uh, Monday episodes, uh, with thanks to Quarter, we loved using the app, and uh, certainly encourage you guys to do as well. Next Monday, we're sitting down with one of the pioneers of the ETF industry. So make sure you. Uh, tune in next Monday as well. But until then, Ren, always great to chat stocks and we'll be back on Thursday. Sounds good. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. 
We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.